The Third Men podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! Explosion now? Hey, Paul. No. Oh. That would be terrible. Well, uh, that's unfortunate because this is the first ever episode of the yeah. Third Men podcast, the Jack White podcast. I am your co-host, Paul Kaminsky. I am your other co-host, James Kaminsky. And we are a couple of people not affiliated with Jack White in any way, so please don't sue us, that love Jack White and will be hosting this podcast about him and his music. And if you haven't gathered from the fact that our voices are pretty much the same... What are you uh, talking about? I don't know. Um, but we're probably confusing the audience. They probably think this is some kind of mind trip. Anyway, we're brothers. We are brothers. It's true. So, James, will you walk with me, Susie Lee, through the podcast and the kinds of things we're going to be covering on this show? I'd love to, but those aren't the lyrics. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We'll lose all that. Yeah, all right. well. Uh, on, the, on the podcast, we're going to be covering a variety of topics in and around the fandom associated with Jack White. James and I have been Jack White fans for, what, about 15 years now or so? Something like that, yeah. First, first gen, if you could call us that, and I don't think you can. No, you can't. Um, no. But we're, we're pretty close. We started following him uh, pretty early in his career. And by really, like, I mean right when he got popular, but yeah, you know. so yeah, so like first and a half gen. There's a lot of history for a lot of bands out there, and not a lot of history readily available for Jack White and his music. And so this podcast is really a journey for us to go through and learn about it. If you guys want to write in and contribute to the conversation, we are happy to read your angry emails. Please, if we're wrong, uh, this is the first podcast where we're, we're actually saying email us. Let us know. Yes. We'd like to know. For the love of God, email us. We will Unless have a, it's about grammar, in which case, screw you. Fact-based pedantry. Right, Megantry. Megantry. We only want Megantry on this show. <laughs> and that's that'll be a segment we call uh, Stop Breaking Down. Which is uh, what we call a bad joke. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, well, this is off to a rollicking start. On this show, we're going to be covering Jack White albums, tours, the various bands he's been in. We'll spotlight a variety of different topics, ranging from the actual recordings to his history and friends in the music business. Right, we'll be going through concert tours, venues, instruments, record labels, possibly getting into some of his various beefs. Yeah, oh, the Jack beefs we'll have. Oh. Gotta love Jack Beef. We will start now with our topic announcement for this week. We are going to be doing an album analysis and review of the debut album, The White Stripes, by The White Stripes. One of uh, my favorite albums, actually. Yeah, it's a it's an album that is uh, is really Jack at his most raw. It kind of captures the spirit of his early career in a way n no other album really does. Uh, and it, as we'll talk about it, it kind of serves as the template for his entire uh, discography up to this point. So we're going to go through a uh, history and then do a do a track by track analysis, and we'll give you some background and really just do an overview of that very first release. 
So let's start with the album and when it came out. The album is called The White Stripes, and it was released on June 15th, 1999, produced by Jack and engineer Jim Diamond, and that was made in Detroit, Michigan, Jack's Jack's hometown. The album dedicated to Sunhouse, which is kind of cool because that also is a is a hint of things to come in terms of his style and um yeah sunhouse is a big uh influence to him and notoriously and uh it might get loud that album by sunhouse is one of his favorites and what got him into the blues to begin with yeah it might get loud was one of the first forays we kind of got into the background of his kind of musical taste the first uh, official foray. The yeah. first official, yeah. Plenty of bootlegs out there. But. He uh, he doesn't care for people talking about his history that don't know him, so this podcast is going to go over great. Right. I mean, honestly, part of what the White Stripes were about and part of why they were so loved is the mystery of it all. People didn't know if they were brother, sister, wife, husband, you know, the whole... It was just a very mysterious band, and people kind of loved the lore of it all. Right, right. So yeah, we're not going to go into too much of the how the Stripes got together because that's going to kind of be its its own show. But just the brief background is Meg and uh, Jack were married, and uh, Jack was rehearsing uh, upstairs in the in the place where they lived, and uh, Meg came up to join and started crashing on the drums. And Jack said, "That's it. That's what I've been searching for." And the White Stripes were born. That's sort of the nutshell explanation. Right. Jack at the time was playing with a couple different bands, Two Star Tabernacle and the Go, the Go which was sort of a little bit later. But uh, the White Stripes started as a side project for him with Meg, and um, you know when they started playing at the Gold Dollar at their first gig, people were sort of like, "Oh, you know that? Hey, that's that's the guy from Two Star Tabernacle, and uh, the Bricks, pl- yeah, playing with his wife, and the Bricks." <laughs> Yeah, it's a small town area, and there's a there's a limited amount of people that sort of were into that kind of music. So people knew Meg, people knew Jack, they knew they were married, they knew Meg had no musical background, and so it was kind of like everyone sort of scratching their heads at it, which leads to the mystique we talked about earlier. Right, it was like a very tight-knit community over there. So uh, you flash forward a little while... Uh, they, they've been playing for a little bit. Meg is still learning the drums. Uh, she is... Keeping up with Jack and primarily relying on their rapport together as as a couple, uh, not not in the sense of misogynistic way, but more like they know each other. She's looking at him. She's looking at him for cues, and he's basing his whole sound around her. One thing that should be noted, though, is that she wasn't really learning the drums so much as she was just banging on the drums, which Jack liked. He wasn't. It's. I'm not trying to say that as a mean thing, but she was just hitting the drums. Right. She um, was. Yeah, people were were known to have really, really hated Meg's drumming in the early days. I mean, people hated it later too, but you know, people were like, "Wow, she's really not good." But at the same time, Jack kind of liked that, so that was the whole. That I mean that he he based the stripes. The whole point of the stripes is based on that, as he would put it, childlike drumming. Right. So they have their sound. They have their scene. They have their now single. They put they put together two singles, uh, February of ninety eight. The initial pressing was a thousand copies. It was it was a very limited print run. And you know one one thing you find consistent throughout Jack's in early interviews is that he never expected success. And so the fact that there was a thousand copies and he had people seeing him in a club with Meg was probably a shock to the system in and of itself. Uh, then you flash forward to October 1998, and they put out another single, Lafayette Blues, which is also only released on vinyl with a thousand copies. So you have these two sort of singles, and you know they they are songs that are quintessential to the White Stripes. But we'll kind of we'll kind of go into that when we do it track by track. Uh, let's hear a little bit of Lafayette Blues. Here. Yeah. 
so as you can hear, uh, Lafayette Blues is really a template for a lot of the songs they're about to sort of put down in their career. Now, does he know French, or is he just... Well, yeah, let's well, let's talk a little bit about Lafayette Blues now. The French in it is mostly him listing the French street signs in Detroit. Really? Yes. <laughs> so you have Marinette, Leverette, Lanette, Lafayette, Livernois. Wow. Uh, yeah. That is amazing. Yeah. And it's like Paul McCartney level, Michelle Mybel <laughs> right. level French. Jack said about this song, this one is about streets your parent might used to live on. <laughs> Paul, I love your Jack voice. Um, we should probably tell everybody uh, that that is our Jack voice. <laughs> we have one, and we know it doesn't sound anything like it's, him. It's real offensive. If you're listening to this, Jack, we love you. We're sorry. Yes. Or anyone involved. We we understand it. We're sorry, and we love uh, you. The rest of the quote is, uh, because I know most of you are north of 8 Mile now. Uh, your <laughs> parents might used to live in a street that they have no idea what the name of it was and what it meant and what is the history behind it. So welcome to it. Welcome to your family history, and welcome to Mr. George Washington helping you out, starting this country for you. And now you have roads and potholes to complain about, which is a awesome, awesome Jack quote. <laughs> Fantastic. Yes. Now, that, that takes up some of his grumpiness. Right. <laughs> uh, and it also uh, brings up 8 Mile, which is a famous Detroit street that was referenced in Eminem. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, important to keep in mind, while Jax was rising to prominence here, so was Kid Rock and Eminem, both from Detroit. So there was this really this big surge in Detroit popularity right around this sort of late 90s time which a lot of people contribute to the the auto industry kind of shipping a lot of jobs out and a lot of this poverty creeping in and poverty is always a recipe for creativity and right. disease the, and death and stuff it's but. the the city is slowly turning into what we currently have as a cliched joke now right right so anyway those two singles come out and they are on Italy records which are then shopped around and they wind up in the hands of my personal hero and biggest thrill that I found him on this podcast, Long Gone John. I love that name. And his record label called Sympathy for the Record Industry. Which I is also a, love that title. He's a huge Stones fan who named his company after the song Sympathy for the Devil. And so Long Gone John, we will have a show about this guy. But long story short, he is a juvenile delinquent that grew up and became a punker. He decided to strap reel-to-reel cassette recorders to his body and wear them underneath trench coats to shows and bootleg the shows of bands he was into. What a bastard. Yeah. And so he, he did that enough and he started making all this money. He's like, wow, the real money's in music because he, you know, he was into burglary and uh, robbing <laughs> Salvation Army drop-offs before that. Hey, what are you into? What scene are you into? Uh, you know, I'm just into punk, uh, rock. Burglary, mostly. Yes. <laughs> yeah, really some, deep, deep diving into burglary. Some, some light larceny. You probably haven't heard of it yet. Right. Um, Battery. Yeah. 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 Well, let's not go that far. <laughs> uh, so anyway, Long Gone starts a record label, and by starts a record label, I mean he is the sole employee of this thing. He is the curator of the whole thing. Again, we will do a show on Long Gone. There's a great documentary about him called The Treasures of Long Gone John. It is on Amazon Prime right now, and you would be stupid not to go watch it because it's amazing. And I have not, and I will go. Okay. Uh, Long Gone worked with a lot of acts that actually kind of made it big eventually. A uh, whole... The Von Bondies, which are were Jackalite associates for in their later in his career, uh, Spoon, Bad Religion, uh, White Flag, oh, yeah. um, the Detroit Cobras. Wanda Jackson put out a, a, an album. Awesome. Yeah, she did a single called Heart Trouble on there, which begs the question: Is that is that commonality between Long Gone and Jack, or is that where they met? I don't know. I don't um, think they would have met through this guy. I feel like from what I've heard about him. I don't think he's sharing much of his contacts with anybody in particular. But Long gone, if you're listening, uh, please respond to my email. We want to talk to you. We would love to talk to you. <laughs> I want to talk to you in the worst way. Just give us a call back, please. Yes. Uh, he also worked with Veruca Salt, which is interesting. Which is awesome. Uh, yeah. 
Maggie. Anyway, long story short, he takes a chance on Jack and Meg, and he liked what he heard. And as he'll say himself in in the documentary, no one was going to take a chance on these guys if it wasn't for like a true degenerate like Long Gone John. He talks a lot of smack about him in this thing. Uh, not so smack so much as like, well, yeah, good fortune smiled on them. You know, I'm not saying they're not talented, but they're not any more talented or less talented than anybody else on my label. You know, so it was very sort of dismissive of it, and I think he might there might be a little bit of bad blood there mm-hmm. because the White Stripes actually released their first three albums with him, and then when White Blood Cells was a runaway hit, they took it because Jack maintained ownership of his material. They took it to Richard Branson and Virgin to V2 and, you know, made $4 million. So I'm if I were long gone, I would be pretty bummed about that myself. Richard Branson involved with space. Jack White just launched a space probe. Conspiracy? We'll never know. <laughs> that was my mind blowing. <laughs> Alias is a show about a space. Bye. <laughs> so uh, I should also mention Treasures of Long Gone John, directed by uh, Greg Gibbs. Greg, I salute you for spending that amount of time with that man. <laughs> and I also am envious of you. Um, so that's that's the atmosphere we're getting to. So the White Stripes had a, sh- had a stage act. Jack had a lot of material. He was writing the songs and doing covers that he and Meg got behind together. And really what you hear in this first album is not so much their stage act song for song, but what you hear is their act as a group in full showcase. Uh, It is an explosive record. It is uh, almost all original songs. And it, you know, we mentioned this before in the podcast. I will mention it again. Each song is really a template for what, what Jack White would do later in all his other groups. The credits on the album, of course, Jack is on vocals, guitar, piano, and he co-produced it with Jim Diamond, who is a guy whose name will be popping up a lot in the early career of the White Stripes. Jim Diamond worked with Jack at the Ghetto Recorders studio in Detroit, Michigan, and as Jim Diamond kind of puts it, they cut the record in about seven to ten days, which sounds really brief. Yeah, that's really quick. (laughs) And that's cutting it, mixing it like all of it. Like, back to front. A week. A note on Jim Diamond, another Jack connection with him, is that he was also a member of the Dirt Bombs, who was basically the the rival group in Detroit of the White Stripes. The Dirt Bombs, who are awesome, by the way. If you haven't heard them, you should definitely check them out. Watching Soul Train on a Friday night So Jim Diamond is working with them, again, in about a week. They came in, laid down the tracks, did the mixing. He said they actually ran the vocals through a guitar amp because Jack didn't want the record to sound like it was being made in a recording studio. Bless that man. Uh, To which Jim replied, but Jack, you are in a recording studio. (laughs) God bless that man. (laughs) Yes. I can see a quirk or two popping up between those two that... Probably would have been interesting to watch. So the charm that this first record has, even though it's in a recording studio, it very much doesn't sound like it. And it, it's it's one of these things where a reviewer had said that at any moment it feels like it's at the verge of completely flying apart. And that's a great way to put it, actually, because Meg's drums are at the heart of this record, but they are also all over the place, which is by design. Right. But it's a chaotic record, to say the least, which is an extension of the chaotic band that they were at that time and would stay for quite a while. Yeah, it's it's definitely got an edge to it, and the refinement or lack thereof is is definitely a huge part of that edge. Um, right. And it's got that garagey feel, but yet it's it's weird a weird mixture of garage and blues. Yeah, it's and that's that's another thing, you know, we'll harp on a lot in this show is, you know, the part of the appeal for Jack White is that he is the extension of the creams of the world, the Led Zeppelins of the world, those types of bands. He is the next one in the in the set. And as he's going, it's almost like the music industry is a snowball. And as it's rolling along, he's picking up the Sex Pistols and he's picking up Pearl Jam and he's picking up Nirvana. And, you know, he's rolling and rolling and picking up all these different influences and then spitting it out with Meg bashing the drums like Bam Bam. And that's how you get the White Stripes. 
You're like a caveman, Meg. Quote, he would say often. <laughs> yes. Uh, so Meg is on the drums on the album. The other credit on there, of course, Johnny Walker, who plays slide guitar on two of the tracks, Susie Lee and I Fought Piranhas. And he was from the Soledad Brothers. I knew that name, yeah. Yeah, the other members of the Soledad Brothers include Ben Swank. Oh, wow. Good old Ben yeah. Swank. Leader of, yeah. I believe, the Cast Corridor, or it might be uh, the other one, the Nashville Front. But anyway, he heads up some of the the Third Man Records uh, shop location stuff. Johnny actually taught Jack how to play slide guitar, which is interesting. The uh, the only other credits really associated with this, Co Molina Z- Zedeco took some photography in associated in association with the record, and Heather White, Meg's sister. Now, is it Zydeco like the music? It is Co Molina Zydeco. So yeah, let's let's get into track by track, shall we? Yeah. Let's start with the first song on the album, Jimmy the Exploder. Fun uh, little story <laughs> about Jimmy the Exploder is that is the name I used to go by on my Deviant Art page was Jimmy the Exploder. Because, Jimmy. Yes, I was I was always bound to explode. Anyway, <laughs> Jack said it uh, in an interview. It's about sexual frustration. So. Yeah, okay. He's singing I with get his it. wife about it. Okay, cool. I get it. Uh, Green Apple. <laughs> the Green Apple reference is a prema- prematurity reference, as apples are green until they are mature and ripe uh, oh, when they gross. turn red. Gross. Uh, yeah, it's super gross, but uh, hey, you can interpret it any way you like. Um, oh, the exploder! I just got it. No. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> uh, Jack said this is that was it was courtesy of Reddit. This is courtesy of Stripespedia, which is a awesome Jack White resource. Jack said of Meg, she was playing so childishly. Everyone I'd ever played with were like male drummers. <laughs> I've been writing all these childish songs like Jimmy the Exploder for our first album. This story I made up about the monkey who exploded things. <laughs> That weren't the color red. So when Meg started playing that way, I was like, man, don't even practice. This is perfect. (laughs) He would go on to also say that he told Meg specifically, don't ever practice. Right. Which is insane to me. But he was going for a a sound, you know? He was going for, like, a specific way about the band. The record opens with... It opens with that, yeah. It opens with that gray drum. You know, she, you know, for somebody who's not really experienced, she's keeping time pretty well. She knows the basics, which is important. She's not like a bad drummer. She's just not technically proficient. Right. There's songs on this album where her drumming is downright great, and we'll we'll get to those as well. It's worth noting that their first live recording of it was in 1997 at the Gold Dollar, um, which shows you just how early they were playing together in this sort of proto version of the band it's one of my favorite songs it's a high energy opener it's one of the best album openers you could have asked for in terms of sequencing on this thing partly because of that big drum opening and it's reflective of their live set in terms of tone it's a real like kick in the door something to prove kind of song and and relatively short like most tracks on this album so they're in they're out they've exploded at you and then they go on to the next thing which is I mean, if you ever seen them live, and we've only we only saw them live once, but their set is boom, boom, boom. You know, they're they're going yeah. through songs a mile a minute. Yeah, they they continuously keep uh, just moving and moving and moving, which is kind of nice, and it keeps it fresh, uh, especially on this album. You know, some of these songs and some of these beats can be a little grating if they were to go on any longer, but they they know exactly when to stop. Speaking of which, that song blends into Stop Breaking Down, which is track two, and it's a cover. And, you know, this is another one of those songs that is quintessential of the White Stripes. You have this loud rocker to open things, and then you follow it up with a blues standard. And it's really in two songs, Jack and Meg set the precedent for their entire musical career. And it's maybe my favorite Jack cover of all time. Of, as, of all the covers that he's done over the years, I think this one is by far my favorite. It was originally written and performed by Robert Johnson as the Stop Breaking Down Blues from the 30s, I think 1937. And it was really only commercially available up until the 1960s. That's when that's when it started to get into people's hands. And you can see because the explosion of people covering this song really starts there, and the most famous of which being the Rolling Stones covering it. Let's hear a little bit of uh, the Stones doing this song. Stop 
is it's unclear which one Jack originally heard. Jack is a big Rolling Stones fan. I even played with them on stage and they did they did a song together. They did Loving Cup, I believe. It was on one of the Stones tours. Because I know they went bowling not too recently. It was like two years ago again. Yes. With a with their red bowling ball. Ruth. Thank you. Uh, it's unclear whether he had the Stones he heard the Stones version first or the Buddy Guy cover in 1968. It could be either, honestly. But honestly, uh, knowing him, he probably could have dug up a vinyl from the 1930s and found it from that too. That's also true. Eric Clapton also famously covered this song, and Todd Rundgren on Todd Rundgren's Robert Johnson tribute album. It, it was just called Todd Rundgren's Johnson, which is amazing. Oh, oh, <laughs> Eric Clapton's was a little more tastefully titled Me and Mr. Johnson. Well, uh, for a Philly man, I'm not expecting any less. So, Right. Uh, it, it's a beautiful song. It's great. So that brings us actually to, to the first single on the album, The Big Three Killed My Baby, and this will be our song of the week. which we will kick off by bringing in our third man for this week, Mr. Michael Cass Eric Jezaitis, the fourth. Hello, the third. The second. Hi, Mike. Hi, guys. <laughs> How are you? The only. The one, the only. There's too many anyway. So There's three's, three men. Three, three's plenty. Three is plenty of men. Mike, how long have you been into Jack White? It started with... I guess white blood cells when fell of the girl came out that was kind of like what is this music that i have no clue that it sounds like today and it was just wonderful and i got into him then and i've been i would say uh, several rungs below the two of years obsession with him since then so you would say <laughs> since puberty you've been jacking it i have since puberty i have been jacking it yes uh, so you're actually the first of the three of us to get into the white stripes that's probably right yeah, but I don't think with the same fervor, if that makes sense. We took it to the ninety ninth degree. That was very true. Yeah, we took it to a we took it to a gross place. We took it to a yes. real gross ah. place. But I think you had a stronger bridge there because you were listening to a little harder stuff than we were at that time, and so I feel like for the kind of grunge and alt rock, you were already listening to White Stripes was sort of a net, more natural bridge. I would agree. Yeah, what, that makes sense. Yeah. But White Blood Cells is a hard album to argue with. I remember listening to it in your bedroom for the first time, I think, and being like, wow, this is awesome. And then we got to college not long after that, and Elephant had come out by that point. And yes, that's right. We were all just hooked. So we're today we're going to talk a little bit about the song Big Three Killed My Baby, which was actually the first single off of the White Stripes debut album, The White Stripes. And that's back in 1999. Big Three Killed My Baby. Mike, do you have any idea what that song is about? Vaguely. I know it's from Detroit, and if I remember right, there's some references to cars in it. So I'm going to go with something to do with Ford, Chevy, and Chrysler, but that's kind of where it ends. That's really pretty much it. The big three refers to Ford, Chrysler, and General Motors. It's an attack on those companies relating to the fall of labor unions in the 60s. Uh, Yeah, in researching the song, one of the key phrases that kind of opened it up for me was this. It it talks about Tucker's blood. Do you remember that? It says something like, he says, like, the motor's running on Tucker's blood. Yes, yes. Anyway, so that that yes, that reference is actually to a guy named Preston Tucker who had made this car called the Tucker Torpedo, actually called the Tucker 48, and only 51 were made before the company folded. And it is said that the big three automakers conspired to sink Tucker. It's, it's interesting because I, I think Jack was probably made aware of it by the Francis Ford Coppola movie from 1988 <laughs> called Tucker the man in his dream which goes into it a lot and it sounds like there is this conspiracy by the big three automakers to maintain the internal combustion engine at all costs because they were making so much money with it so the implication is tucker was this guy who's like yeah car- cars are going to be electric and i've got all these ideas and the, and the big three got together and said no you don't and shut him down uh, so, so eh, come so, on i mean i think the guy's just a bad delorean you know, he, he and DeLorean's not great either. He started and stopped. Guys, just sure. Be, he's made he made a bad the Homer. Uh, right. Well, they called it yeah, exactly. It's a bad Homer. They called it the Tucker torpedo because it looked like a weird airplane torpedo thing. Uh, Mike, have you happens? ever seen one of these cars? I think so. Isn't that what happens? Like when anybody always tries to build like their own car, it never really looks like what modern cars are. And then they challenge you, but this is what it should look like. Yeah, I generally know what you're talking about. So this carries over to Jack's general dislike of cars, which is something I never really knew existed. I guess it kind of falls under Jack Beefs, but... Um, <laughs> is that a segment? Listen, Yes. <laughs> really? Because that would be excellent. Yes. Like, things he just hates? 
Oh, and he hates so many things. Here's some quotes about the about cars. You get you get all of these things. I'm pretty fed up with cars. I don't know what you call it when Buddhist monks whip themselves, but I have that on my hand. I have three hose clamps on my hand for the big three. And somebody just made me a necklace with a piece of machinery that says property of Ford Motor Company. I have a big hatred for that, for having spent so much money and time on something that hasn't changed in over a hundred years. Same design of the engine in a car, it's not progressing at all. That's why I say, don't let them tell you the future's electric, because gasoline's not measured in metric. The idea that they won't make any money if they make a good kind of car. It's kind of a shame. Well, it looks like Jack was not ready to do the Tesla modern car joke. Oh, I mean, yeah. that's good. Come on. It's a good that's one. good. Yeah. There's other quotes that go on to say, I just can't stand cars. They're the worst money pits and killing machines of all time. Uh, <laughs> There's another one. Everyone, all they do is spend their money on the car companies. It seemed like this big thing that everyone just accepts, and that's the way it's going to be. I want to know what There's Jack's another... opinions are on the housing industry. Yes, I'm sure he has many thoughts. Uh, a funny thing about this song is that we played that on a local public television channel here in Detroit a few months ago, and they asked us to play two other ones. In the end, they wouldn't air The Big Three Killed My Baby. They were sponsored by Chrysler. <laughs> So, interesting to know this is one of the few political songs Jack ever did. Mike, do you know the other one of the other more prominent political songs? No. <laughs> that sorry. was a really defeated sounding no. <laughs> I was trying to think. I, I don't know. No, sorry. James? I got nothing. Uh, that would be Icky Thump. Really? Where what's he, it, a, where what's he references, it about? references uh, white Americans want yeah. nothing better to do. do Why don't you yeah. kick yourselves out? You're, You're an, an immigrant, immigrant too. too? Yeah, Trump It's like one of the one. few times. He doesn't do it a lot. He really doesn't. But every once in a while. So The Big Three Killed My Baby was the first 7-inch single off of this album. It was released in March of 99. And the cover for Big Three Killed My Baby has Jack and Meg standing next to a picture of a car engine with a sign labeled, Insert Money Here, taped to the engine. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> and that is kind of Maybe special. that was Jack's uh, problem. Besides filling that- his gas tank with quarters and pennies and stuff. <laughs> that could do it to... no cars run on uh, copper to my knowledge so I don't know Bad call, the man. B-side of this song was Handsprings which is one of my favorite Jack I songs like that song. I've never heard that one it's a good one it yeah, was one of the really, first really he recorded isn't it? yeah uh, so why don't we let's play a little bit of Big Three Killed My Baby wraps up this week's uh, song of the week segment thank you to michael cass eric jositis the third for joining us pleasure to be here thanks mike. thanks mike all right back to the show the next song up is Susie lee featuring the character Susie lee who actually makes a lot of appearances in jack white's songs and this will be a, a feature on the show whenever we have a consistent character in jack's songs show up can you name these songs that Susie Lee shows up in, James? I can name at least one, which is I think we're going to be friends. That is Walk one. with me, Susie Lee, Through the Park and By the Tree. Um, that's the only one I can think of right now. Uh, the album Get Behind Me, Satan is dedicated to Susie Lee as a concept. Oh, I'll be damned. Yeah, the rumor is that Susie was a childhood crush of his, although it's likely that if that is not the case, that Susie Lee is just a an idealized name naming convention for that kind of childhood crush, like the little redheaded girl kind of thing. Yeah. 
All right, I would have assumed it was Rita Hayworth, but... Oh, in a place so seedy. In a place so seedy. Yeah, I mean, imagine if Jack had gone and married uh, Susie Lee, then he would be Jack Lee, and everyone would think he's some kind of weird uh, mashup of Jackie Chan and Bruce Lee. Oh, shooting everybody down with his 33? <laughs> oh, Jackie Lee! That is perhaps another reference to Susie Lee, because it's if possible. J- <laughs> Jack would have taken her name as his uh, as his last name. Jackie Lee off the Dead Weathers album Dodge and Burn. Yes. That, uh, let's get that count up to four on Susie Lee. And uh, if anyone has any others, please send them to us. Uh, is this one of the few tender moments on the album? This and Sugar, Never Tasted So Good, are kind of the sweetest it gets here. Mm-hmm. The playing is a departure from where you wound up in terms of style, but the slide really works on this album. It sounds like someone digging a grave. Let's hear some of that. Susie Lee, deceptively hardcore, which leads us to a song that is not so deceptively hardcore. Unless you take a look at the lyrics, uh, which would be Sugar Never Tasted So Good honestly one of my favorite songs off the album probably for that reason because it sounds so different i really like this song a lot via stripespedia again thank you stripespedia uh most commonly believed to be about jack falling in love with his dream girl who's as a result has complete control of him which is a common theme in jack white songs people controlling one another in relationships there's the allusion to puppet strings really really great poetry on jack's part and you know fingers your fingers have become a crane pulling on these puppet strings it's really which really is, yeah it's one of my favorite lyrics which is uh, following one of my least favorite lyrics if the wrinkle that is in your brain has given you quite <laughs> a steam yeah he's stretching a little bit on this album his his songwriting isn't quite where it winds up later but there's a charm to it even when it's not quite working according to ben blackwell jack's dog elroy can be heard on this song oh named after the jetson i don't know maybe I hope so <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, Blackwell, Don't tell him the future's electric. <laughs> uh, Blackwell, who we mentioned earlier, Jack's nephew and drummer for the Dirt Bombs. And this song was the, the B-side to Lafayette Blues in November 98, the, the Italy release. Yeah, This is the closest we get to a Jack Diddy on this album. That is a expression we have coined for songs that are cute little... Jack ditties. Little yeah. ditties. A couple little ditties. And it's one of the few acoustic songs on the album. Water, also a common theme in Jack's music. I assume a stand-in for purity, that kind of thing in, in songs. Moving on from there, we have the next track, Wasting My Time. The book, the page, the line, the word, the letter. The letter. It's a lovely lyric. I love that one. Yeah, it's a good one. I, I do like this song. I don't like how it starts, but I do really like this song Like once it gets going. Uh, about a girl that is fleeting, one can surmise, and I do, courtesy of song meanings uh, on the internet. <laughs> Not a whole lot said about this song over the years on Jack's part. If you have any background on this, let us know. Uh, there's a few songs like that on this album where there's just not a lot about them. The next song is Canon. One of my favorites on the album. One, yeah. yeah, this is a great track. Uh, one I gain more appreciation uh, for in a live setting, actually. Yeah, he tends to play this one pretty consistently at live shows. He tends to use it as a bridge, actually, between songs, which a lot of these sort of turn into, but canon is sort of an easy one to do it with. Is John the Revelator on the actual album? Yes. So this okay. uh, this song contains a segment of John the Revelator, which is a traditional tune, though Jack is referencing the version recorded by Sunhouse. And it is a gospel song made famous by Blind Willie Johnson and Sunhouse. Uh, in the chorus, John, John of Patmos, the traditional author of the Book of Revelation, is writing the Book of the Seven Seals. So that's the Book of Revelation in the right. Bible, a, the Holy Bible. One of many uh, biblical references Jack will make, uh, he does not hide that he grew up in a Catholic family and, you know, sprinkles in a lot of that references into his albums and song titles and lyrics and such. Overtly so. Another Jack character being the female god who shows yes, up in a lot of his like, songs. He does like calling God she, which I'm fine with. I think that's that's very, uh, he's very progressive in that he's very uh, pro-equality and feminism and all that. Right. Uh, so, Canon, of course, a great track, leads into the, the eighth song on the album, Astro, which is another really, really strong song. It's an aggressive nursery rhyme from hell, is how I was putting it. <laughs> um, pretty good. Kind of goes along with the other 
Jack explaining his songwriting on the album where he's he's basically saying he was writing a lot of these nursery rhyme style songs and Meg is just playing into them and they're both uh, frankly amazing on Astro. It's interesting that you you say it like that because um, that's part of the whole White Stripes. I say gimmick, but you know it's their their whole aesthetic is a better way to say it. Is that they are you know basically like children. You know the peppermint Meg having pigtails, which most of these things were Meg's idea uh, to go along with the childlike drumming, mostly to to cover up for the fact that they were white people playing blues, which Jack was very cognizant of. <laughs> yeah, he was very worried that he'd get called out for it for appropriation and all that. Right, so this is another one of those kinds of songs, and Astro, uh, if you if you don't know, it is a, a phrase that Jack made up that refers to something you do in secret that nobody knows about. I did not know that. Or, more specifically, doing something hypocritical in secret. Oh, a hypocritical key is? Perhaps a hypocritical key is. <laughs> uh, uh, that, that's why Edison and Tesla and all that stuff are, are the, the centerpiece of the later part of the song is because they had this rivalry, but Edison was secretly basically gaslighting Tesla to drive him out of business and driving him insane. And Tesla eventually went insane, invented a death ray, and became engulfed in his own misophobia and obsessive-compulsive behavior. And I believe he married his cat. And I am not joking. I believe he actually married his cat. Uh, it's crazy. And speaking of pets, uh, Jasper and Lily are, are not only two characters in the Virginia Woolf novel To the Lighthouse, but uh, Jasper is also the name of a dog that Jack had at this time. Wow. Two Jack dogs that yeah. I had never heard of before today. And they are both thanked in the liner notes of Vicky Thump, by the way. <laughs> maybe maybe Jasper does the Astro. We'll never know. Jimmy uh, presumably refers to Jimmy the Exploder. Oh. Uh, Jack, I mean, uh, the, you had just said that Jimmy the Exploder term for Jack. <laughs> <laughs> uh, J- Jack said of this song, the Astro is whatever you do in secret nobody knows about. Everybody does the Astro. Jimmy does the Astro. Actually, for a while there, right before we recorded the album, that song was just an instrumental. I was just mouthing syllables. I didn't say anything. I didn't write lyrics to that until just a few minutes before we recorded it. <laughs> And they ended up becoming about something I had been thinking about. It's about the things that people do in secret. I called that the Astro, because it just had a ring to it. But the things people do, like, I guess the clue to that was Thomas Edison is ACDC. He was only into direct current. He didn't believe in alternating current, and that was supposedly his downfall of delivering electrical power to the people. But maybe he secretly knew the right way to do things. Ooh. Yeah. Bum, 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 bum. That's very interesting that he came up with the lyrics minutes before recording because yes. that's, you know, uh, you, he likes to do everything real quick. You can hear it as an instrumental when you when you listen to the song. It does stand on its own as an instrumental. I'm very glad it's not because the lyrics are actually kind of catchy. Pretty nice guitar solo in that song, too. Really good guitar solo. This song is all, often played in conjunction with Jack the Ripper. <laughs> Which is uh, which is a really cool song from the uh, from the '60s, and which was covered a bunch of times. Let's let's hear a little bit of the Screaming Lord Such version. The Ripper, Jack the Ripper. There's a man walk the streets of London late at night. The Ripper, Jack the Ripper. With a little black bag that's oh so tight. The Ripper, Jack the Ripper. He's got a big black cloak hanging. I do really enjoy the 60s version, though, because I just love the way they call, like, the way they say the Ripper. They go, the Ripper. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> Jeff, in the my Ripper. Head, the Kelly Ripper. It's, it's very fun. <laughs> 
Oh, somebody get Weird Al. Let's get Kelly the <laughs> Let's get Kelly the Ripa going. Oh, uh, yep, yeah, yeah, it's right up Weird Al's alley. So that brings us to the side closer, Broken Bricks. Broken Bricks. It's got some minimalism going on there. I think you know it's a driving song. It's relentless. It's partly because of that bell, and that's actually one of the things Jim Diamond recalled specifically as really having enjoyed about this album is that he got to ring this school bell Jack was obsessed with. Throughout that song, you hear this bell going. It's not a cowbell. It's a school bell. So uh, that that's interesting. It's one of my uh, favorite guitar riffs is on Broken Bricks because it's, it's really fast-paced and, I don't know, it's a nice tempo and, and Meg keeps up with it really nice. And it breaks down a couple times. In- well, stop breaking down. <laughs> into some really nice some nice guitar work which is in my opinion some of the nicer guitar work on the album uh, and that brings us that's the side closer of side a so that brings us to side two So that was When I Hear My Name, which is a honestly the perfect opening track to a side of an album. You know, it's really Roy, it's really badass, it's a standout track on the whole album, there's a kick-ass solo, like, it's really good stuff. I'm assuming it's because, like Ringo, he forgets his name quite often and needs people to uh, tell him, so when he hears his name, <laughs> he instantly... Uh, it brings us to Do, which... I love this song, as James will attest... <laughs> I gained an appreciation for this song via a very drunk person at Madison Square Garden. I was going to say, that's when I started really liking this song, too. <laughs> James, uh, <laughs> I was gonna, the, this guy, we were, we were walking out of a solo show at Madison Square Garden. It was the one he played with uh, Run the Jewels. And so we were walking out, and this very drunk man was screaming. I really wanted him to play Do. He just kept going on about Do, and we engaged him in conversation, and... As we were talking, the more I was like, yeah, do. Yeah, it's a great song. <laughs> so I really I've, – I've grown to appreciate it since then. It's kind of a little more grown up than the other ones on the album. I was going to say I feel like it would fit really well into White Blood Cells, which is a very thought-provoking, lyrically masterful work. And right. I think Do has that mastery of lyrics that he, he has. It's it's also a the through line of Under Great White Northern Lights. The more I was thinking about the song and looking at the lyrics, and I was thinking more, you know, this was co-written with Meg. A lot of them supposedly were. I'm not sure how much Meg was really involved in it. Jack can tell us one day when he writes a damn book. But, uh, you know, Meg famously suffers from social anxiety. The song is about social anxiety. It's about either Jack or Meg or whoever it is it's being scared to be honest with people because they feel like they'll use it against him. So he takes a gulp and acts funny is one of the right. lines in there. And so that's kind of interesting. It was foreshadowing of the White Stripes breakup, which is you know, precipitated by Meg's social anxiety. As she was told to do as a child, speak softly and carry big stick, like right. uh, Theodore Roosevelt said. She said in an interview that uh, she did both. She's now speaking softly and carrying two big sticks. Yes, she is. There's a sick rendition of this song, by the way, on the Peel Sessions, um, but Jack's equipment actually breaks halfway through it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's having an electrical problem. All right, yeah. I believe the electronics have gotten the better of me. Yeah, he could have used a screwdriver, which is the next song on the album. So <laughs> we'd like to call Nailed It. Jack, a quote, again, via Stripes Peter, we were just goofing around. We just started doing this riff, and there was a screwdriver laying there in the room. So I started singing about it. And what I'd do with it, you know, being angry... We we thought it sounded really good, and we thought, why don't we work on this? He also said, I'd gotten threatened that week, just walking up the street, and screwdriver was retaliation. This feeling that I owe somebody, I don't even know something, and that at the same time my life is threatened. Like the line, I love people like a brother now, but I'm not going to be your mother now. I don't need to owe anybody. I need to protect myself. That brings us to another cover on the album, uh, One More Cup of Coffee, written by Bob Dylan on his album Desire in 76, I think. I won't pull any punches. I like the Dylan version better. I, too, like the Dylan version better. It is not my favorite track on the album. It's cool to hear him doing a Dylan cover, and it's a departure from the source material, which makes it, I think, a successful cover. It's just not one I care to listen to. I listen to it, but I I definitely prefer Dylan. But it's it's interesting to hear that he's listening to Dylan because him and him and Dylan share a lot of the same kind of voice of the people kind of feeling. 
in their music. Totally. And they're both not singers so much as vocalists, so it's mm-hmm. it's befitting that he does that. Uh, and Dylan Covers will show up again in his music later on with the Dead Weather. Will There Be Enough Water was a response to Dylan, wasn't it? And there's also New Pony. You know, this is one of these songs, I, it's appropriate to say, you know, when he writes a song, he and Meg cover that song. So they're always more comfortable covering someone else, even if it's him, because I think that group is so manufactured by design that there's a certain amount of distance, which uh, precludes cover material. Hmm. Uh, the next song, the next song is little people. Uh, this one is one of the ones I always forget exists, yeah, but it, on. looking it up right now. Cause I honestly don't remember. <laughs> there's a little girl who says oh, big, 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 this song is interesting in terms of structure. It feels a little more like a lab experiment than a finished song. <laughs> um, like something's gone awry, and Jack is like, I don't know what <laughs> right. to do with this. But, you know, it's worth saying that this is one of the few songs on the album that has a special effect on it. Uh, the howling sound in the back, it's some sort of feedback manipulation. It sounds like a whale song. Yeah. Uh, which is kind of yeah. cool. It leads to another track, Slicker Drips, which is also... One I just always forget exists, but this one is super heavy. The chord progressions feel like a waterfall. Again, like just the blues in Jack's own words, just sort of drowning you. I remember often uh, mostly for the title. I really enjoy the title, Slicker Drips. Uh, it's a, yeah. I kind of want to hear Daru or like Keeler tear into this track. Or even you, even Jack. Even or you. For the, yeah, the, like do this with the dead weather. It's ama- It'd be amazing. Don't think that'll happen. The dead weather tend to stick to dead weather. Not a lot of info on this song. It's definitely a brand of jeans, though. So thanks, Google. Appreciate it. <laughs> um, that brings us to St. James Infirmary Blues, uh, which is... me down to St. James, James Infirmary. Infirmary. Another cover on this album, written by Jay Primrose. Bob Dylan also covered this song. Yeah, it seems to be a pretty standard blues song. Well, he, he sort of took the melody and renamed the song Blind Willie McTell, hmm. who actually himself recorded a rendition of this song. And that brings us to our first Rag and Bone! Rag and Bone is the segment of the show where we talk about a weird, stupid fact we learned about Jack White during our research on the show. And Fantastic, this, I'm excited. Yeah, this week's Rag and Bone is in association with the song St. James Infirmary Blues. The song, when Blind Willie McTell recorded it, titled it Dying Crapshooters Blues. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, probably had a lot of slicker drips when he was crapshooting. Yes, so that, that brings us to... <laughs> <laughs> he had one more cup of coffee, and boy, did he do. Yes. Uh, so this this song... <laughs> This song is also known as uh, Gambler's Blues. It came out uh, like a cannon, and it felt <laughs> like he was wasting his time. <sighs> uh, so, back to the song. Uh, it broke, and he told it to stop breaking down. <laughs> and then he fought his some number two was so big, it was a number three, and it killed his baby. I'm sorry. They're t- oh, oh, God. Can- his butt baby. Uh, this song was also covered by Cab Calloway, Arlo Guthrie, Van Morrison, Eric Clapton, Joe Cocker, The Doors, and Janis Joplin. That's a lot of people. Uh, let's hear a little bit of that Doors cover. Stretched out. On a cold white table So cool So white So fair Very, very bizarre to hear it a cappella because he's basically just singing it and I think the audience is just like, 
Y- yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Jim Morrison. Jim Morrison's real nutcase. It's a good fit for the kind of music the Stripes make. It's really super dark when you read the lyrics. It's another one of those I could see the Dead Weather covering it. Yeah, um, I mean, it fits with the with the darkness of the blues of the time. I mean, uh, Death Letter is another one which we'll get to again at another show. But Death Letter is uh, is another one that's similarly dark and bluesy. Um, right. Right. Uh, named after a hospital in London that was founded to treat leprosy. The rolling piano on the song is really cool. Again, shades of what we'd see on Satan. And then that brings us to our album closer. My favorite song on the album. It's badass. It's moody. It's groovy. It's I Fought Piranhas. And it's amazing. I do like this song a lot and really enjoy it live. Most notably, I think he does it in Blackpool Lights. The yes. show, um, it is uh, amazing. That's where I gained an appreciation for this whole album. I think the earliest official white stripes concert footage released i believe i believe so i think it's from the elephant era but really good film if you don't know about it look it up fantastic uh, the documentary it might get loud used this really prominently it's it's played as a connective tissue piece throughout a lot of that and it's, it's awesome it, there's many interpretations of this song jesus's resurrection doing time in jail cast away at sea i don't know what it's about jack please tell us but um Jack just talk about one has talked about one song on the album being inspired by Moby Dick, and this could very well have been that. Uh, that is also courtesy of WhiteStripes.net, and this is another song in which Johnny Walker plays a slide very, very effectively. It's a great album closer, and the lyrics are intense. Let, let's play a little bit of that last stanza. Well, you know what it's like. There's no one with you. You're all alone. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. It's dark. It's awesome. Uh, so that is the track-by-track track analysis, and uh, we'll move on to personal overview. Jack said of this album, you know, I don't think we'll top it. This must be somewhere around Elephant, but he said, uh, Elephant is a close second. I love Elephant, but we're never going to capture Detroit rock and roll like we did with that first one. It was good we got out of that way. If we hadn't, I'd probably still be searching for that. Same with Let's Shake Hands, the first 45. We'll never top that. But as long as it's there, I can move on. He also said, I still feel we've never topped our first album. It's the most raw, the most powerful, the most Detroit-sounding record we ever made. I went overboard with the rawness and the reverb, though. That was the first time I produced a full album for us, and I definitely learned from the experience. And I would disagree. I kind of really like the, as he would put it, the rawness and the reverb. It's really uh, crunchy. The critical reception very favorable, and this is where when John Peel, the uh, musical tastemaker based out of the UK, started to catch his attention. And really, it's in the UK later in their career where they take off in terms of exposure, and and that's where they recorded Elephant. Yeah, they um, John Peel really championed them in in the uh, in the UK, and and honestly, uh, the Europe had a, a Detroit blossoming where they kind of loved. Uh, everything coming out of Detroit at the time. So we're going to go ahead and give this album a rating. James, you're up first, and you want to explain the rating system for us? Yeah, we're coming up with a completely arbitrary rating system because we both are such big fans, I don't think we're ever going to dip below six or something like that. I do think that we should have a not-our-favorite-like-it-love-it kind of deal. Brought to you by Cold Stone Creamery. Anyway, so it's out of three, as Jack White would have. If I were to give this a rating out of three, I would probably give it two men out of three. <laughs> two men out of three from Jimmy the Exploder. If I had to give this album a rating, I would have to give it a 2.5. Okay. Right. I I like it. I'm on the verge. I love it for its historical context, but it's not – out of all Jack's catalog, it's not my first pull, but I do like it a lot. Yeah, I can see that. So, yeah, two and a half men. Not bad. Two and a half men. And that is our first topic, The White Stripes. And that's going to do it for us today on the Third Men Podcast. Thank you very much for listening to our first episode. We hope you come back next week for more. James, you want to tell us what's on the docket for next week? Next week we're going to be covering the topic of White Blood Cells, one of the most popular White Stripes albums of all time. Can't wait to do that one. And so thank you all, all three of you, for listening to our first episode. And 
A huge thank you to my fellow Third Men house band mates, Sam Kubert and Tom Valenti, for the recording of our theme song, We're the Third Men, off of the album Putting the Days to Bed. Thank you, Sam and Tom. <laughs> That's an in-joke for you. And we'd like to thank Mike Josaitis for coming in on the show. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. That's going to do it for us this week. Until next time, we'll be looking for a home. Oh, we'll be looking for a home. See you next time. For more information or to contact the show, visit thethirdmen.wordpress.com or email at thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at thirdmencast on Twitter and search The Third Men on Facebook. See you next time. The next song is Little People. Uh, this is one of those ones I always... Did I just burp weird? I don't know. Right. Did you hear that gunshot through my mic? Yes. Cool.